Amen. Thank you, Jake and Emily, for your leadership in our music ministry this morning. Thank you for that wonderful singing. It's always a blessing to be able to sing uh, those great hymns of the faith together. And uh, you sang so well again this morning. John chapter 17. John chapter 17. This is, in uh, a sense, as we have talked about before, the Lord's Prayer. I know we think of uh, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I, I know we think of that as the Lord's Prayer, refer to that as the Lord's Prayer. In a sense, that would be the disciples' prayer or a template, a pattern for prayer by which we should model our prayers. Though we refer to that as the Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayer. In a sense, though, John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. This is Christ's high priestly prayer. He prayed for himself. He prayed for his apostles, those 11 men who were there with him that night in the garden. And then he prayed for us. And we're going to make some applications today that as Jesus prayed specifically for his apostles, those 11 disciples, of course, Judas had already left to betray Christ. As he prayed specifically for them, we have to make some secondary applications to us as well as followers of Christ, as disciples of Christ. Though we are not apostles in the specific sense, with the signs and the gifts of the apostles, and having all the qualifications of apostles, still we are sent ones. We have been called into this world to serve the Lord, to preach the gospel, to be a testimony, to be a salt and a light. And there are principles, there are applications that we can make to our lives Though Christ is specifically praying in the context for those 11 men, those apostles. But we'll make those applications, Lord willing, today as we work our way through this passage. John 17 and verse 13, we read, And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Christ had prayed for himself. We spent some time looking at that in the first six verses. And then in the next section, and we got through uh, verse 13 the last time, a couple weeks ago when we were in this passage, and Christ is praying for his disciples. He prayed for their security in verses 7, really all the way through verse 13, and then he will pray for their sanctification in these following verses, specifically in verse 17. And that is where we have the title to today's message, Sanctify Them Through Thy Truth. So Christ prayed for their security. He knew that they would be facing some incredible hardships. He knew they'd be facing persecutions. He knew the kinds of things that they would suffer for the sake of His name. And He knew they would need that security. That security that comes only from Christ and a security in Christ that produces real lasting joy that he references in verse 13. Not this fleeting happiness of temporary happiness that comes from all of the gratifications of this earth, the passing pleasures of sin. There are joys, there are happy moments that God gives us that we're thankful for. God has given us all things, good things for us to enjoy, richly for us to enjoy. God has given us grace and we've been able to enjoy so many of the blessings and the joys and the favors that God has bestowed upon us. And he's not saying that we can't enjoy those blessings and those favors and that, that happiness, but that is not the ultimate measure of joy. True joy, true peace comes from 
a relationship with Jesus Christ and the security and the satisfaction that Christ brings. And he knew that these men, as we know from the historical record, and we, we, we don't know specifically the fate of every single one of the disciples, the historical record seems to indicate that all 11 of these men and then the Apostle Paul would die by martyrdom which means they would basically lose all when he called them to be his disciples, when they got saved and then they came as his disciples and followed him as his apostles, he said things to them about denying themselves, taking up their cross and following him, putting away their fishing nets, putting away their tax collection, putting away all the things that they would have as earthly pleasures or benefits being willing to put all those away that they might serve Christ, that they might be his disciples, even if it meant losing everything, even down to giving their life for Christ. So he prayed for their security. And in Christ, they would find their security, their satisfaction, and their joy, even when the circumstances around them would seem to produce otherwise. But then we see that Christ prays for their sanctification. And he prays for their sanctification through the word of God. We see here in verse 14, I have given them thy word. So we see this morning, first of all, the truth given. God gave them his word. The Bible is a gift from God. God's word is... The Bible is a gift from our Heavenly Father, delivered to us through Jesus Christ, the living Word, and through the Holy Spirit, who moved men as they recorded, as they wrote the very inspired words, the God-breathed words of God. We have God's revelation, complete in front of us today. Maybe it's on an electronic device. But we have the Word of God. We are not missing anything. There's nothing out there that we should be looking after, trying to find, that's hidden someplace. It's not found in some mysterious codes or in some secret society. No, we have the Word of God clearly revealed, preserved, the very inspired Word of God. This is a gift from God to us. How else would we know the meaning of life? How we got here? Why we are here? Where we are going? What are we doing? What happens after we die? We wouldn't know any of those things had not God had God not revealed those things to us in his word. Back in verse number 8 of chapter 17, we read that the Father gave his word to Christ. We know that Christ then gave the word of God to the disciples. They believed God's word and became his followers. But as I just mentioned, many of them would also be used as God's instruments for recording God's inspired word. As we know from 2 Peter chapter 1 and from 2 Timothy chapter number 3. So God's word has been revealed to man delivered to us. We have his word as a gift from God. And the Bible is all about Christ. 
The Bible is all about Jesus. He is the living word and he is the theme of the written word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. We read in John 1 in verses 1 and 2. Jesus Christ is the revelation of God incarnate in human form. And the Bible is the revelation of God in written form. The Bible is the inspired, infallible word of God. We are so thankful, or should be so thankful and so grateful for the privilege that we have of having the Word of God clearly preserved, inspired, and we have before us, again, maybe in electronic form, in written form, we have maybe in our homes dozens of copies of the Word of God. I know I have more than a dozen copies of the Word of God in my house. And then I take my tablets and my Bible programs and I have, and my apps I have, and then there's the internet where you can go and you can literally read the Bible now off the internet. Incredible the resources. There are places around the world where they don't even have the Word of God in their language. And we have a missionary that we are supporting, Dr. Kim, who I've mentioned here before, has been working on a translation and just completed a translation in a specific dialect for the people of Myanmar who have never until recently had the written word of God in their language. Incredible. The Bible is the word of God. The Bible is a gift to us. It's a gift of love. From God to us. But we see here in this passage that the world hates Christ and his disciples. And they hate Christ and they hate his disciples because of the word of God. We touched on this before already about the world hates Christ and the world hates believers. The world hates us as Christ followers because the world hated him first. As Jesus is praying this prayer, there are, there are a group of religious leaders and one of his former followers, Judas, who are conspiring right there and then. As Jesus is praying in the garden, they are preparing to come and to take Christ and to arrest him and to crucify him unjustly and unfairly. We know that the world hates Christ and hates his disciples, and hates the word of God. Why? Because the Bible reveals man's true condition. But the Bible doesn't just reveal man's condition and leave him there. The Bible reveals the solution for man's hopeless condition. And it is the power of God unto salvation, we read in Romans 1, in verse number 16. And in Romans 10 and verse 17, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Yet man still in his sin nature hates the word of God and hates Christ and hates Christ's followers. Why? Again, because the Bible reveals man's true condition. We're sinners. We're sinners by nature we're sinners by choice. We're sinners by birth. 
It's hard for us sometimes to think of ourselves that way. But that's one of the reasons that the world hates the Bible and hates Christ and hates Christ's followers. Because the Bible reveals God's absolute standard of righteousness and shows how man has failed to measure up to God's absolute standard of righteousness. The world doesn't want an absolute standard of right and wrong. The world mocks absolute standards of right and wrong. The world has this idea of tolerance, tolerance for every kind of error in sin and perversion, but no tolerance for the truth, the truth of the word of God, sadly. Man wants to make up his own standard of right and wrong, of truth and error, of morality and immorality. In short, man wants to be his own God. And that's where we're at in our culture today. But notice again, we come back to verse 14. I have given them thy word. There we see the word of God is a gift from God. And the world hath hated them because they are not of the world. Even as I am not of the world. Verse 15, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. He repeats that twice. He says that twice. He repeats it. Verse 14, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Verse 16, again, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. That speaks very clearly, very plainly, to the fact that we are to be separated individuals. That we are called as saints, as saved individuals, having placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, having been made citizens of heaven, that we are not of this world. We should not be tied to this world and to the temporal or to the passing pleasures of the sin of this world. It's very clear, it's very plain. Personal and ecclesiastical separation are taught very clearly in the Word of God. I know we don't live in the dispensation of the Old Testament of Israel and the theocracy, but is it not obvious when Israel came out of Egypt and as God gave them the law that He wanted Israel, He wanted God's people to be distinct he wanted them to be separate. He did not want them to be involved in the sins of the people of the land of Canaan or the nations around them, the ungodly pagan nations around them. Separation was a daily part of the Jewish life. Now, Israel is not the church. The church is not Israel. We don't live in a theocracy. We are in a different dispensation. But is there not a principle that remains the same? Our God remains the same. So should we not still have a life of separation from the world? Does God not clearly teach that? He even teaches in our holiness and our sanctification, though we are not ever going to reach a state of sinless perfection this side of heaven, still our goal, our standard is be ye holy for I am holy. That is repeated in the New Testament and that is a quote from Leviticus where the law was given. 
So these disciples, these apostles, and us in the secondary application of Christ's prayer, as we also are little a apostles, if I can say it that way, as sent ones, yes, they were given a higher calling in one sense, but we still are called like as they were to be set apart, to be sanctified as citizens of heaven, to be separated from this world. We are not of the world. We talk about oil and water not mixing. I'm not, I can't do what Dan Clark does with all these different chemical experiments, but we understand that certain things just don't mix. They are opposites. They are combustible or whatever the case may be. We are not of the same nature. We are not of the same calling. We have a totally different Lord, God, whom we serve. The unsaved, the world, serves the God of this world, Satan. We are called to serve the one true and living God. The Bible is clear. And we have been given a higher calling than this world offers. We have been called not to the hopes and the dreams and the achievements of this world, but we have been called to the eternal. We have been called as ambassadors for Christ to preach the eternal truths, to share the gospel that saves men from their sin. We have been called, yes, into this world, and we are in the world, but we are not of the world. That is Christ's prayer. Though we are not of the world, he prays not that we should be taken or his disciples, and we are applying that as well to ourselves, not that we are to be taken out of the world, verse 15, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. So we have this constant tension of being in the world, but not being of the world. And if Christ called the apostles to that standard, should that not also be the standard for us as his followers? 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, down through verse 17, love not the world. Neither things that are in the world. And we talk about in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So we're told to love not the world. 2 Corinthians chapter number 6, very, very clear in 2 Corinthians 6, that we're to not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and 
They shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And if that wasn't enough, we could go to other passages, such as James chapter number 1. James chapter number 1, where we are told to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. And then James 4 and verse number 4. James doesn't hold back any punches. James 4 and verse number 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So why as believers, when the scripture is so clear, why as believers are we so chummy and friendly with the world? Why are we allowing the world to establish our priorities, our values, to set our morals? Why is it that believers, professing believers, are more enamored with the world's entertainment than with the Word of God, with the Church of God, with sanctified living? We live in a world today that is so strong in its influence. We have, in the information age, we have voices screaming at us from every single direction, it seems like. I talk about many times that us, many of us growing up, we did not have the burden of a thousand headlines. But the kids today, too, the kids today do have those burdens. We have to be extremely cautious with the internet, with phones. Huge mental crises in our nation, among our young people, directly associated with social media. There are statistics now that 90% of men are exposed to pornography. And I forget what the latest statistic is of the age. It's going lower of their first exposure to pornography. It used to be the upper teens. I think it's now in the preteens or 13 or lower. The world is screaming from the Internet to the billboards to the commercials to the social media to all of the different apps to the music to the movies. You name it. The world is screaming. Be like us. Follow us. This is the way to popularity. This is the way to success. This is the way to happiness. Don't be a prude. Don't be out of touch. Don't be old school. In order for us to progress as a society, we must adopt and accept all of these different variations of sin and evil and perversion. That's what the world says. But Jesus prayed specifically. He said, I am not of the world. My disciples are not of the world. And I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world. They are in the world, but not to be of the world. So we have to live with that constant tension, keeping our focus upon the standard of God's word. Be holy, for I am holy, 
claiming the promises, claiming the principles, claiming the commands of the word of God to come out from among them and be separate, to love not the world, to not be a friend of the world, to not be an adulterer or an adulteress with the world, as James 4 tells us. So do we need Christian teachers? Yes, we do. We need Christian teachers. We need Christian lawyers. We need Christian mail carriers. We need Christian factory workers. We need Christian IT technicians. We need Christian audio and video engineers and various other kinds of engineers. I'm thankful for engineers that can build the buildings and the bridges and all the various mechanics. We need Christian engineers. We need Christian mechanics, Christian truck drivers, Christian salesmen, Christian homemakers, Christian nurses, Christian doctors, Christian meteorologists. We need them. We need people who will surrender as well to vocational ministry to serve as pastors, as missionaries, and evangelists. We need Christians in those areas, in all of those areas. But that doesn't mean that we give up our calling, that we give up our distinctness as Christians while we serve in those areas. No. As we need Christians in all those areas, all of us understand as we go into the place that God has called us to, we have to still live an uncompromising Christian life as salt and light in those places. God has saved us, and we are citizens of heaven. But we are ambassadors for Christ and have this ministry of reconciliation. And for some of you, you are the only Christian in that work environment. You are the only one. You are the only salt and you are the only light. And God has called you there. And that is a place that you have an opportunity to be in the world, but not to be of the world. And to share the truth of Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. And to share that light in that place. Wherever God has placed us, we need to be salt and light. That as Matthew 5 and verse 16 says, that they may see our good works. And glorify our Father, which is in heaven. Again, sadly, many professing believers have more of the world's priorities, more of the world's values, more of the world's interests, and more of the world's goals than they do of Christ and the Bible. So here we see Christ praying, praying for his disciples, and praying for us that we would be thankful for the gift of God's word that brings security, that brings joy, that yes, is a cause for the world's hatred, but it is a gift of God that helps us as believers called into this world that we are not of, that we might take the truths, the principles, the promises, the commands of God's word and live them out in the world while not being of the world. So we see also, as the word of God sanctifies us for our place of calling and service, wherever he has placed us, we see this sanctifying aspect of the word of God there in verse 17. Very clearly, Jesus prays, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So this is where, again, we have this tension 
We have been saved from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. And we look forward to glorification as we will one day be saved from the very presence of sin. And we enter into glory and the sin nature is gone and we are in the very presence of Christ our Savior without sin. We look forward to that day. But right now we're in this tension. If we have trusted Christ as our Savior, we've been saved from the penalty of sin and we've been saved from the power of sin. But exercising that power, that victory that we have in Christ is a constant back and forth battle. Now, I believe the sin nature is dead, but it is still there. And it has a putrefying influence, as I've talked about before. Like a corpse, like a dead body has a putrefying influence on any place that it is, it is around. So the sin nature has that effect on the Christian life. So how do we stay Pure, how do we progress in our holiness? How do we become more like Christ? How do we become more like what we already are in Christ? How do we walk worthy of the calling where which we have already been called to? How do we do that? Jesus says right here, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. We know that God's word is truth. John 14, 6, we know that God's Son is truth. And then in 1 John 5, in verse 6, we know that the Spirit is truth. We need all three for our sanctification. But sanctification is a process. And it can be a grueling process at times. And we are, con- we, we, in our culture, we are conditioned to be lazy to always take the easy way out. I mentioned the other day, someone made this statement, that it is almost a mockery in our culture if you take the hard way, if you do the hard thing. I remember working a job between semesters of college, and I worked at a book warehouse. And I would come in in the morning, and we used to have to take these carts. I'm sure a lot of this is now automated, but we used to have to take these carts and we had to go through dozens, if not hundreds, of bookshelves. And we had to match up our order form with the ISBN number and place those books in that cart so that they could go on to the next stage in the process. And I would go in and I would usually, first thing in the morning, I would choose the biggest order. I would literally go through the carts and I would find the thickest, the biggest order. And I would take that one and I would be on that cart and I'd be working on that particular order sometimes for hours. And my boss came to me one time and he was just like, why are you always choosing the the largest order? And I I said, I don't know. I just, that's just what I prefer to do. I want to get the the largest order out of the way. He's like, everybody else comes in and they just choose the, the shortest and then they want to go goof off for a while. You know, I'm like, I, that's not the way I was trained. I'm thankful I had mom and dad you know, that taught me, you know, you got to do the hard thing. You know, it's hard when we come home from school and the last thing you want to do on your homework is the math. I know I pick on math a lot in here, don't I? But I was taught, do the hard subject first. Get it out of the way. Get it done. Get up in the morning. Get the hard thing done. Get that out of the way. And then, you know, but in our culture, it's reversed. And I don't always make the best choice of doing the hard thing first. I'm not 
the course perfect in that area. But that's the way I was trained. That's the way I was raised. And, and we've lost that, a lot of that in our culture, haven't we? It's take the easiest, the most convenient, the most comfortable, and that seeps into our Christianity. And God never said that our sanctification would come easily. I wish that I could get my sanctification from a pill bottle in the cabinet. It would be nice if I could go up and I could just take the pill of patience and I could just swallow that and I could go next to it and I could get the the pill of kindness. And then I'd have to really take a big horse pill on uh, the the, the pill of of my tongue, you know, because my tongue gets me in trouble. I'd have to take a big horse pill of that. That's That's what we want the Christian life to be, right? We want the Christian life to be an easy fix. Pop a few pills and we're sanctified. And thankfully, we can do that with certain things, certain physical ailments. We can take some ibuprofen and get over a headache or whatever. Thankfully, we've advanced in our modern technologies. We can get over some of our physical ailments. Thankfully, easier or better or with less pain. But really, anything that is worth doing is going to take hard work. I'm a baseball fan. I think one of the reasons that baseball has not been as popular through the years is because baseball is hard work. You've got to put a lot of time into the cage. You've got to put a lot of time swinging a lot of uh, bats and swinging a lot of pitches. Uh, it's not saying that because you like basketball that you're a wimp or, or some other sport. I'm not saying that. There's, there's a process to, to every sport. There's a training and, a, and an effort to every sport. I just, as a baseball fan, I think that sometimes kids quit on it so easily because it, it gets hard. But there's so many things about life that they just don't come easily. And sanctification in the Christian life is a process. And it takes work. It takes the spiritual disciplines. We need the purifying influence of the word of God. Jesus prayed, sanctify them, not through signs and wonders and miracles. He didn't say sanctify them through health, wealth, and prosperity. He said what? He didn't say sanctify them through secret codes and societies. He said sanctify them through thy truth. The faith once delivered to the saints. We have the full canon of scripture. This is what we need for our salvation and for living the Christian life. And it is work. Sanctification means to be set apart to make holy. Growing up, and there's a Christian comedian that jokes about this. Our kids laugh. They never experienced it. But some of us had to get sanctified when we fell and skinned our knee or our elbow. And our mom or dad would get out that, I forget the name of that stuff, that would be sprayed And I had it just a little bit when I was very young. I remember my mom bringing out, I cannot remember the name of that medicine. And it would be Bactine, thank you, Bactine. And spray that on. And you scream like a banshee. But it was setting apart the germs and the bacteria and the infection from the skin and the knee or the elbow, whatever that needed to be restored. It hurts, but it was necessary. Sanctification means to set apart, to make holy. And do we realize that once God saved us, he never gives up on pursuing our sanctification? 
It is God that worketh in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. At the same time, we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And we live in that tension all the time. But it's part of the process of sanctification. Through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, sanctification is a work of God. It is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. Whereby we are set apart from sin into God. And that takes place only through the truth of the word of God. So we need to constantly be under the teaching and the preaching and in meditation and in study of and in reading and in knowing the word of God. Psalm 19. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. That's actually Psalm 119. Psalm 19 speaks of the word of God and its power of sanctifying our life. Psalm 19. And we read there, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them, There is great reward. We read in Hebrews 4 and verse number 12 about the word of God being quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even through the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. And is a discern of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Ephesians chapter number 5. We know this passage well as the husband loving his wife. We talked about this passage a little bit yesterday. We had a wonderful men's Breakfast and Bible study. About 30 men. What a joy. What a blessing that was to be together yesterday. And we talked a little bit about this passage. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. The washing, the cleansing comes by the water. The water of the word. The water of the word of God. We need that, that he might present, that Christ might present the church, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. God is pursuing us in our sanctification. He is constantly at work making us more like himself. That's what Romans 8 and verse 28 and 29 are really all about. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, them he also predestinated that we might be conformed to the image of his son. All those things are working for our good to them that love God, to them who are the called. What is that good? That we might be conformed to the image of his son. We don't always like that, do we? That process can be painful. It can be hard. And we're all at different levels of sanctification. But God expects all of us to be growing and maturing as we know, as we study. And probably the hardest part 
is the application of the Word of God. Because we like to read or study, meditate, be under the teaching and preaching of God's Word, and we like to say, boy, that was a great message. That was a great lesson. That was a great point, preacher. Sure hope that so-and-so behind me was listening. I sure hope that so-and-so down there on the first row was paying attention because they really need to apply that. We're really good about that. We're really good about saying all these other people around us need sanctification. Or we know that there are certain people that, in our minds, they they really need to, to grow up. They really need to mature. And that might be true, but it has to start with oneself. It has to start with me. I got to take care of that beam in my own eye before I ever deal with the speck in somebody else's eye. Sanctification begins at home, begins with our own personal walk with the Lord. We can make all these applications for everybody else, but we got to start with our own life. We got to deal with our own issues. It doesn't mean that we don't confront. It doesn't mean that God doesn't use people in our lives to help us in our sanctification process. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that God uses people in our lives to help apply the word of God to our lives. I'm thankful for mentors. I'm thankful for a youth pastor. I'm thankful for pastors. Thankful for parents. Thankful for friends and spiritual leaders in my life. For the men even of this church who speak to my life and help me take the truth of the word of God and apply it so that I can live a life that is holy, that is more like Christ. And sometimes that sanctification process involves some wise counsel, but it also might involve some wise confrontation. And sometimes that confrontation is not always pleasant. But God also sometimes uses chastening to get us to apply the word of God to our lives, doesn't he? And that chastening isn't, isn't, isn't pleasant at the time. It's grievous at the time. But it's necessary. Because sometimes we won't apply the word of God. We'll, we'll give ourselves an exemption. We'll, give, we'll make ourselves an exception until we have to deal with that in a hard way because of God's chastening. And then we're like, oh, I wish I would applied God's truth. Here sooner. I wish I would have listened to that spiritual leader, that person in my life who was trying to help me. It's sometimes even circumstances that God brings in the sanctification process. Circumstances by which we must apply the promises, the principles, and the commands of the Word of God so that we can learn what God is teaching us through the trials and the tribulations and the testings of our circumstances that God has allowed or that God has ordered into our lives. Sanctification is a process. It can be tough. It can be hard. But it's necessary. It's what God wants. It's what Christ prayed for. One commentator said, Learning and loving should lead to living, allowing the Spirit of God to enable us to obey His word. Christ prayed for the disciples. He prayed for their security. He prayed that they might have joy in that security that they have in Christ. And he prayed for their sanctification. The Bible is a gift of God given to us 
for our salvation and for our sanctification. So what kind of application are we willing to make today? Someone here who does not know Christ as their Savior, are you willing to make the application to humble yourself? To say, I am wrong, I'm a sinner. And I need Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. as the only way of my salvation for forgiveness of my sins. For a home in heaven. Whereas a believer, maybe the application is, God, I know that there's some sanctification process that you're doing in my life. But I, I, I haven't been applying it like I should. Maybe it's because you've neglected the word of God in your personal life. Maybe it's because you've not been faithful in church. Maybe it's because you've not been faithful in your Bible study and prayer. Maybe it's because you haven't been listening to good godly counsel. Maybe it's because you've not been applying the word of God in your circumstances. Maybe it's because you're not listening to God as he's chastening. But we are told here in this prayer that God sanctifies us through his truth. And his word is truth. So won't we make those applications today? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, so powerful, this prayer of our Savior, Jesus Christ, praying for his apostles, praying for us, that we might be set apart from this wicked, ungodly world and set apart to you. Lord, maybe there's some applications that we need to make in our lives, some changes to be conformed to the image of your son. And you've been trying to work on that area, but we have been refusing. We've been stubborn. We've been too proud. Lord, help us to make that change. Lord, help us to determine that we are going to let the Spirit of God do his work. And that the word of God, we will humble ourselves. We will submit to God's truth, to the word of God and See you do your work and to change us and to make us more like you. And Lord, I pray if there's someone here who does not know you as their Savior, may today be the day of salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name.